0: DJ PK, time to welcome in Riley Nelson, BYU football radio analyst. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Lease any handset and get an iPad for $99.99. Visit the local Sprint store near you. Riley, good morning. Morning, Dave. I can't hear him, man. Me neither. You got me now? Now we got you, Riley. How are you?
1: Doing well. How are you guys?
0: Good. So I don't want to go any X's and O's. I don't want to go details. I want to go big picture now. How do you explain everything that happened in this season after BYU lost to Utah in the opener, which a lot of people predicted, and there's a streak there, and we see that. But it seems like since then, Washington maybe was the only other game that we really had a good handle on. It's been a series of surprises. They zig, they zag. How do you explain it all?
1: One of the ways I you explain it, and you mentioned Washington, but... The inconsistency really started happening. I mean, Tennessee wasn't very good. I think we knew it was going to be a down year for them, and people were surprised. BYU didn't play terribly good, but I mean, as, as fun as that was, I don't think it was uh, terribly shocking, you know. USC they did get Keaton Slovis in his first road start and, and schemed them up pretty good. Then in Washington they lose Tyson Williams, and then against Toledo they're dealing with that loss, and then they lose Zach Wilson, and then they have Jaron Hall against South Florida, and they lose Jaron Hall against South Florida. So to me, part of the inconsistency, um, including that Washington game and forward up until you know the recent surprises against Boise State and Utah State, can be partly due to um, to personnel, right? To losing key players and key injuries. And by the way, I just mentioned the ones on the offensive side of the ball. They've been dealing with losses on the defensive side of the ball. It's been a revolving door at linebacker. Now, it hasn't been season-ending stuff, but guys have been able to come back. Uh, you know, they did lose Zane Anderson, who was uh, going into the season was going to be a big part of it. So personnel's the first thing. And then the second thing is we've got to realize, at least offensively, this is a coaching staff that only had one season under their belt. And While that seems like it should be a decent sample size, how it's a completely different set of personnel. It's a younger group of players. And I think you had a coaching staff on the offensive side of the ball that was still uh, trying to find itself. And while it's trying to find itself, we were getting inconsistent performance. And then uh, the defense really was consi- was pretty consistent, like – not good against the run. Extremely bend don't break. Not a lot of pressure until that Boise State game when you know from from what I, from what's been reported, there's probably been some change in responsibilities and and some different emphasis. Mainly uh, Kalani Sitake becoming far more involved, going back to his roots as a defensive coordinator, and, and that has caused some changes there. So to me, it's those those three things: one, just personnel dealing with injuries, and two. On the offensive side, I think it's been a continuously, you know, a continuous uh, effort for this team to, to try and find their stride, and then, you know, the changeover going into Boise on the defensive side of the ball.
2: All right, so specifically from the offensive side, there's no question these last two games, particularly the last game, they looked as good as off- offensively as they've looked in years. I don't think anybody can argue that. And players make plays and coaches coach. You now there's been some changes in the coaching assignments, too, in terms of play calling. And they don't like to necessarily acknowledge it publicly. Uh, but I think it's true, and we've seen the players respond. So if you had to put your finger on it, and I'd probably say a little bit of both, but what percentage would you divide it into between the players making plays and the new forms of play calling?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, um, so... Look, I think the emergence of Sione now, and this might be recency bias, right? But in the last two games, his emergence, he gave USU problems. And he didn't have crazy numbers, but they're not giving him crazy volume, right? But he was he was great against Boise. He was extremely solid. He allowed Lopini Katoa to do what Lopini Katoa does, uh, which is be great in the screen game and be great uh, kind of on the edge. And Sione was able to be really good up front. So his emergence now, running backs, and even quarterbacks, but they're only as good as their offensive line. I think the emergence of Blake Freeland, he's played extremely well coming in at right tackle as there's there's been some injuries there. And credit that entire offensive line, who they themselves have faced uh, a a myriad of injuries, to be able to, as a unit, continue to play at a high level. So I would probably credit those guys 60%, and then 40% has been this offensive staff's effort to continually try and change things, to be collaborative, to really put the best, not kind of have, as far as the offensive staff is architected, where most people might think of it as like the coordinators in charge and it's it's almost kind of a dictatorship and the position coaches work under him. I truly believe they've continued. And and I don't think it was like that at any one point. I think it was, you know, there was always an effort there to be collaborative, that they've really leaned into it and it's become truly, the best ideas win, and the best people are in the best places on game day. Whether you know from it's a play calling standpoint, whether it's a you know Grimes being down on the sideline to make sure you set the emotional tone and keep guys focused and locked in. To all those things, it's really just putting the best guys in the best place. From that offensive staff um, has contributed that other 40 percent, where 60 percent have been the players.
0: So we talked to Liberty's coach, Hugh Freeze, and we were talking about the different quarterbacks that have played this year and about him having to prepare for, you know, how many of them. He was aware, you know, there might be some options this weekend and all that. But he said the one thing is he said he didn't – the guys do have their own strengths and weaknesses, but it doesn't really change the style of the team. There's probably multiple reasons they've been successful with three quarterbacks. That doesn't happen a lot in college football, but it's happened here for BYU – why do you think they've been able to move between quarterbacks, not only the physical stuff but all the emotional leadership stuff, so seamlessly?
1: I'm going to point back to that, and I just spent time talking on the last question, but this offensive line was what was giving people the most optimism coming into the season. And really, if you look, even when the times the offense struggled, it wasn't because the offensive line was you know, giving up a bunch of pressures uh, there were times, granted it was against good defensive front, there were times where, yeah, they had trouble establishing the run, but even at that, I, I think at worst they were average um in, in any kind of moments of weakness. So I've I got to give credit to that offensive line because it all starts there. Now, also there's been consistency within the receiving core. So guys like, it, it's been nice to have... Guys like Matt Bushman and Aleva Hefo and, you know, Matt's been up and down. He was he had a great game against Boise. He doesn't even get a catch against Utah State, but he's still got a stabilizing influence and his presence on the field, affects the way the defenses play them. Alevahifo's been there a bit healthy. Talon Shumway seems to be good for one key catch a game, whether it's a chunk play or a third down. And then you've got guys like Gunnar Romney and Dax Milne, who uh, you know, are contributing big plays on the edge, uh, especially in the last two or three games. So to me, it's that, uh, of course, we talked about the loss of Tyson Williams, but Lupita Katoa and the emergence of Sione Fino has made it easy for them to really plug and, plug and play from that quarterback position. But to me, all of that starts with the offensive line because they in two games, essentially, well, a game and a half, right, Boise and then the second half of Utah State, part of it is that Baylor Army is getting the ball out of his hands, but the second part is it hasn't even, like, the offensive line hasn't even really let anybody get close to him. And so, any quarterback, no matter what string they are, no matter how much experience they have, is going to feel comfortable going into a situation like that, that they can execute the game plan.
2: Where do you stand on what to do when Zach Wilson, Wilson gets healthy?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I believe... Um, so I'm not. In, I don't have the luxury of being in the locker room. I do think you need to. There needs to be a sensitivity to that. In the sense that, if the players in there, if there's kind of a sentiment, and no one's going to overtly admit this, right? This is where you kind of have to use your people skills and get a feel. If they're going to feel like it's a, it's an entitlement thing that when Zach comes back. Uh, and people are going to be like, oh, man, everyone's, you know, bowing down to this kid because he's the freshman. And and I'm not saying that is the case. I'm just saying you have to be leery of that because if if that is the sentiment of the team, if they're like, look, Baylor came in and he produced it and he's our guy and we want to ride with him, and guys are going to turn around and be a little bit, I I don't know, salty or whatever the word is, if you turn around and just hand it to a guy because he was the starter day one, then then that's that. Now, if – if you get a sense that the entire offense or the team is like, no, look, Zach is our unquestioned leader. He he was he was playing great. You know, he could, he was able to produce that miracle. You know, fourth quarter and overtime against Tennessee. He led us to a win against USC when they were ranked. And and he's our he's our unquestioned leader. And he's our guy. And it's just that, and everybody sees that. as kind of going back to the status quo. You do it, but um, I think I think Zach does have a, a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more tools, and you have to understand that you can't just compare numbers against numbers or performance against performance, because that slate that Zach Wilson played against was completely different of what, you know, these last few games or the last couple games, or three games, or at least South Florida boys in Utah State, that Jaron Hall and and Baylor Romney have played. We don't have the luxury of seeing how Zach Wilson would have played against them. Oh, we got to see him was against the likes of USC, Washington, Utah, you know, really good, solid teams. Um, and, by the way, he threw for over 300 yards. And he had one costly pick, but he threw for over 300 yards and multiple touchdowns against Toledo. So he was doing enough in that game to, to lead you to victory. So you have to be careful of managing the psychology of the team but I also don't think you overcomplicate it. As long as the guy's in leadership in that locker room is okay with Zach coming back as their established leader, then you give him his job back when he's healthy.
0: How well do you know these three quarterbacks and how good of a sense you have how happy they are in the program? Because all we hear about is a transfer portal window, and we see quarterbacks are really as itchy as any position, any athlete, any sports. And it looks like three guys can play, but only one guy can play, so if one or two of the others took off, that wouldn't be a huge surprise. How how much of a handle do you feel like you have on that? I don't know how much you're around the team to know that.
1: Yeah, um, not enough to, to really be privy to how everybody really feels. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, we have conversations, and of course everyone's pulling the party line, just like but I'll just here's some candor for you and just my own personal experience. Back in two thousand two thousand eleven, you know I was extreme. I, I wasn't ever to the point of transferring, but I felt you know I was extremely. I felt like I should have been the guy, and that was that was how I felt, and that was how I worked, and that was that was my attitude. I wasn't walking around being all happy and content and and happy with my situation. I was extremely displeased with it. Um, when I coming back, you know I got hurt in 2010, and coming back, I didn't get an opportunity to compete for my job back, and it was given to Jake Heaps, and that was so. I was, I was, I was in a state of discontent, and I got to imagine, you know, these guys, if they're the players that we hope and think they are, they they should be. There should be an element of that. Now, you don't, you don't become ruinous. You don't make it all about yourself, and you don't, you know, you don't upset the team members around you. But there is that element going on. I No one has voiced that to me. I have not been, you know, no one's been that open and honest to me, but i got to imagine it's there. Here's a couple things just for my, so here's the disclaimer of speculation. Two concussions in two games. You know, in that, uh, David Woodward was missing from Utah State um, against BYU because he sustained his third concussion of the season and his fifth one in a career. That starts to get, whenever you have guys sustaining concussions and back-to-back, and and not just back-to-back games, but on seemingly normal hits. The hit that uh, Jaron Hall took as he crossed the goal line on that quarterback draw—I mean, that's a hit that a quarterback, especially a running quarterback, is going to take a half a dozen times a game. A, a game, and if that's one that causes him to go into concussion protocol and not be able to uh, and not be able to continue and not be able to pass protocol and he's a guy who also has opportunities in baseball where he's not taking consistent blows to the head. You wonder if he continues to try and be a two sport athlete uh, and what his future life is there. So again, this is pure speculation. So that, that can create some room in the quarterback room, because now if if that happens with what, you know, Jaron decides to pursue baseball due to, you know, health issues uh, regarding uh, head trauma. Now you've only got two guys and, this goes back to my situation. While I was, you know, discontent that I was that I wasn't the guy, I knew I was still one play away. So where you've got, you know, whether it's that whether they stick with Baylor or they go with Zach, the other guy's only one play away and he's there working. And you can live in that. It's when you feel buried on the depth chart, like, or you get passed over multiple times. Look at Joe Burrow at Ohio State. He was there, got passed over um, by Dwayne Haskins, and then when Justin Fields transfers from Georgia, he got passed over again. Finally enters the transport portal, and of course, it worked out great for him because he's lighting the world on fire at LSU. But um, we'll see; time will tell, and that, that will work it out. But uh, at the end of all of this, I don't have a good feel for it um, because again, people are still trying to toe the party line and be a team player. But I would not be surprised if someone transfers, and I think a wild card in all of this is Jaron Hall's future as a you know playing football. So
2: they're expected to win these next three games, and then they go to San Diego State. We'll see what happens there. Do you take the mindset of, wow, they won five in a row, or do you take the mindset of, oh, my gosh, they could have won seven in a row?
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, more of the five in a row, because you look at Toledo and South Florida, and... Uh, I mean, yeah, they they should have won those games, but bottom line is, uh, being there in, in those stadiums and watching, they did not do enough to win those games. I mean, bottom line, in both of those games, it's hard to say they should have won them because Toledo and South Florida came out in the second half of both of those games down in the game and completely scratched the passing game. They just said, look, we're going to run, and they were able to come back, overcome deficits, and win those games in the fourth quarter by being one-dimensional. So it's hard for me to say that uh, BYU should have seven wins in a row. To, from a 30,000-foot view, they should, but actually being in the stadium and watching those games, they did not deserve to win those two because when you go into the, a fourth quarter with a 10-point lead and the other team is just saying coming out and saying, all we're going to do is run the ball, and you let that lead slip regardless of how it happens, you, you did not deserve to win that game. So this is more where it's like, you know what? The first half was not what we expected it to be, and those two losses will be a blemish on this season. But they turned it around. You know, they've now won five in a row and, you know, have a shot at eight or nine wins to finish out the season.
0: All right, we're not going to ask you much about Liberty because we're pretty sure how this is going to go. We're not missing anything, are we?
1: Well, I so from a little bit of tape, Antonio Gandy Golden, they got a wide receiver He's already got a, a thousand yards and seven TDs on the season, and he had ten TDs and a thousand yards last year. Uh, he's a guy that uh, he's the best receiver that BYU will face, in my opinion, since USC. Now he is just one man, right? But he, uh, I'm interested to see, especially as you know BYU has made some changes in the, in the secondary, moving Dime from. Um, corner to safety, and we're kind of, you know, between Willis and Heron and Mandel, they're kind of playing musical chairs at corners. It'll be interesting to see uh, how much of an impact their wide receiver will have on the game, on the defensive side of the ball. I think BYU should be more physical and and more, um, just be able to line up and should be able to execute base offense and have success against this Liberty defense. But the last thing i will say is, like, don't underestimate a team it's won six out of their last seven uh, because winning is contagious and, and they got a mojo going. Quite honestly, when I look at I – you're right. I think we all know how this will go, but, the, but that's with the context that BYU has been a different team in the last two weeks. As I look at Liberty and I look at South Florida and I'm doing my film study on them, there's not much difference between those two teams. So where BYU was capable of losing to South Florida – they they got to be on guard and they have to continue to uh, you know build on the success of the last two weeks. And again, I'm not I'm not saying like oh there's this, I'm not saying like oh they they should be on upset alert because I do think they turned the corner going into that game against Boise and I don't think this is the same team that played against South Florida. But still, you know it's uh, Liberty. Is they got a lot of confidence. As I look at them scheme wise and personnel wise, they're similar to uh, previous opponents that BYU has played and actually lost to. And so uh, well, it should be a comfortable victory for BYU, uh, I don't think it'll be a boring blowout with, you know, that's 30 something points.
0: Riley, we appreciate it as always. We will talk to you again next week.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, fellas.
0: Riley Nelson, BYU football radio analyst. Join us here on 97.5 at 1280 of the zone.